0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Building a Foundation for Enhanced Outcomes in Pediatric ALL, Guidance on the Asparaginase Component of Modern Therapy. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash taq860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Thanks so much for attending. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Rachel Rao, I'm uh, a pediatric oncologist at Texas Children's Hospital, Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Uh, and with me today is uh, my colleague and friend, Luke Mace, uh, who is an associate professor at University of Utah Huntsman Cancer Institute and Primary Children's Hospital. Uh, it's a great pleasure to uh, talk about disparage today. All right. Uh, so we have a lot of obje- objectives today. I'm not going to go through these in detail because I think they'll become apparent as we move along. Um, so we'll go ahead and get started uh, talking about one of my favorite topsi- topics, asparaginase, for the treatment of acute lymphoblastic leukemia and lymphoma for pediatric patients. Okay. So I'm going to start with a little bit of a historical perspective, um, mostly because I find it super fascinating. Really, the, the story of asparaginase started in the 1950s when a group of researchers for reasons that are still pretty unclear to me, applied guinea pig serum to a lymphoblastic lymphoma cell line and found that it led to pretty rapid cell deaths uh, of those lymphomatous cells. It took the, the same research group about a decade to figure out that it was uh, the fact that guinea pig serum had high concentrations of asparaginase um, that was resulting in the cell death that they were noting. And you can see in a graph from the uh, original paper uh, here on the left, Uh, that the asparaginase activity strongly correlated with the anti-tumor effect. So why is asparaginase effective for lymphoblastic leukemia and lymphoma? Well, asparaginase, as its name implies, is an enzyme that breaks down the the amino acid asparagine into aspartic acid and ammonia. And while our normal healthy cells um, have another protein called asparagine synthetase, so our cells are capable of making its own um, asparagine, uh, Lymphoacic leukemia and lymphoma cells lack this enzyme and so they're incapable of synthesizing their own asparagine and so require it from exogenous sources. So if you starve the environment of asparagine, um, then the leukemia cells shut down their protein production and thus die. So if you think about it, it's really the first precision medicine available in oncology, uh, really leveraging the fact that there's a specific vulnerability in l- leukemia cells um, that isn't uh, a vulnerability in normal cells. All right, so fast forward a few years later, um, we have the report of the first inhuman use of asparaginase. Um, this is a case report published uh, in the late 1960s of a child, an eight-year-old boy with uh multiply relapsed uh, refractory leukemia. He was infused partially purified guinea pig serum. They actually took guinea pig serum, purified what they could asparaginase and infused it into this child. Um, not surprisingly, it was a pretty rough experience. Um, If you read the report, the child was massively febrile to 104. He was tachycardic hypotensive. He had a rapid hemolysis requiring emergent blood transfusions, uh, had like 10 hemorrhagic stools, uh, prompting them to stop the infusion about six hours in. So while that was miserable, what the doctors observed in the days following was actually pretty remarkable. The child's white cell count precipitously plummeted as his blast percent, his infiltrated liver shrunk as his involved testicle. Um, So massive improvement in his leukematous disease, really the first indication that this might be an efficacious therapy uh, for the treatment of acute lymphoblastic leukemia in children. Um, now, fortunately, uh, it was soon thereafter realized that not only is asparaginase present in guinea pig serum, but also synthesized by a number of bacteria. And so E. coli bacteria became the primary source that was then used to study the incorporation of asparaginase into multi-aging chemotherapy for children. And this is really a landmark study uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine 20 years later after that first report. So it took some time to get there showing that the addition of asparaginase into into standard chemotherapy uh, dramatically improved outcomes compared to historical controls. That really ushered in the area of trying to optimize asparaginase therapy for acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And a host of studies, just a few of which are summarized on this slide really showed the importance of asparaginase basically demonstrating that more asparaginase is better so if you look at studies comparing uh, increased number of doses increased duration of asparaginase be it by giving multiple doses over a more prolonged period of time or using an asparaginase that has a better pharmacokinetic profile so native e coli asparaginase has a longer half-life than native native erwinia asparaginase Um, all these studies really came to the same conclusion that more is better Additionally, so if we look at uh, sort of the evidence by addition, we can also look at evidence by subtraction. So this is a paper published a few years ago uh, by my colleague, Sumit Gupta, looking at a number of COG studies um, that incorporate asparaginase therapy. And really, this was prompted by the fact that, uh, as we all in this room know, uh, arwenia asparaginase was uh, subject to frequent and prolonged shortages. So Sumit wanted to ask the question, what happens to those patients who we cannot give uh, arwenia to who need it after they've had a hypersensitivity reaction to their E. coli based asparaginase. When I've asked him why he asked this question, he really, because the families were asking him, What does this do to my child's chance of cure? And he was really hoping that he would find it was not different. But to the contrary, he actually found that if you missed one or more courses of asparaginase in our high risk patients, uh, the risk of relapse increased 50%. Additionally, very similar NOFO data published uh, around the same time um, showed the patients who had to cut short their asparaginase therapy. Uh, For toxicities, most commonly hypersensitivity, they also experience an increased risk of relapse, as demonstrated by the data shown on the slide. So obviously, asperogenase is incredibly important for our patient outcomes. It's a really cornerstone of our ALL, lymphoblastic lymphoma therapy. So it's it's critical that we have uh, consistent supplies. And fortunately, I think we're at a better place um, than we were a few years ago. Um, But I would say that the landscape of asparaginease products is ever-changing and has become a little bit confusing. So I'm going to walk you through the current products that we have available to us. And what I'll say is that the product availability uh, and regulatory approval differs based on where you practice, be it in the United States or other countries, uh, and varies a little bit based on your patient age as I'll walk through. So for the the last several years to decades, um, our primary upfront product has been pegylated E. coli asparaginase. So, if you just take asparaginase out of E. coli uh, in its native form, it's pretty short-acting, and you have to give multiple doses um, over the same uh, over a, a certain period of time. But you can extend the half-life of uh, an asparaginase product by adding uh, moieties of polyethylene gly- glycol or PEG. And so, what has been our, our primary product is a pegylated E. coli asparaginase called Pegaspargase, and that's been available to us for some time. You can see some of the Uh, sort of relevant information about it. Um, So it's long lasting because of the pegylation. So by IV administration has a half-life of about five days uh, and by IM administration as well. Our FDA approved dose right now is 2,500 international units per meter square, no more often than every 14 days um, for our younger patients with a lower dose for our older patients given the increased risk of toxicities, which we'll talk about momentarily. Now, as probably many of you in this room know, um, the products available to us in the United States have changed very recently um, with the transition um, from having Pegaspargase as our primarily available product um, to a newer uh, version of Pegylated E. coli Asparginase um, called CalSpargase, or I'll just call it CalPeg. Um, the same company, Servier, produces both of these products um, and they transitioned from primar- primarily providing um, Pegaspargase to CalPeg uh, back in December. So the products available to our patients have changed. Again, both of these are pegylated E. coli asparagenases. So the general idea is not changed. The only difference between these two is the linker between the peg moiety and the asparagenase. I won't get into the biochemistry of it, but that minor difference actually leads to a pretty significantly longer half life for Calpeg compared to Pegaspargase. Um, we said that the half life of Pegaspargase is about five days. If you look at that of Calpeg, it's 16 days, so it lasts much longer. And that's reflected in sort of the dosing recommendation. So the recommended dose is the same, 2,500 international units per meter square, but no more often than every 21 days. You give it less often compared to uh, giving Pegaspargase. Um, It is not yet approved for our older patients. So it's only approved for patients 21 years of age and younger. So if you've got a 22 year old or older, um, this product is not yet available to them. And I will say CalPEG is only approved in the United States not yet available in other countries unless I'm missing some uh, recent developments. Um, the other difference is that uh, CalPig is only approved IV, um, not its IM, and, uh, IM administration. Okay, so I wanted to spend a little bit of time sort of thinking through the application of these two different Pegulated E. coli products. So what I'll say is that for uh, individuals who use Dana-Farber based protocols, you'll know that uh, a a large component of the consolidation phase of this therapy is continuous asparagine depletion. So essentially, you just give continuous doses of a pegylated E. coli asparaginease product over 30 to 36 weeks. So for Pegaspargase, you know, if you're doing 30 weeks of asparagine depletion, you're going to give a patient 15 doses. When you have Calpeg, it actually is an advantage because you can space that out and you're giving it only every three weeks. You can go from 15 doses to 10 doses, so that's probably an advantage for patients using this style uh, of consolidation therapy for their patients. On the other hand, I think there's some uh, sort of question about the utility and value of a longer acting product on a backbone like a, a COG backbone where we give intermittent doses of asparaginase throughout a patient's treatment. You'll see just sort of our two basic schemas, that of our standard risk patients and our higher risk patients. Our standard risk patients will just get that one dose during induction, another one during DI, and that's it. Even our high-risk patients get pretty spaced out doses of pegylated E. coli asparaginase: one during induction, a couple during consolidation, DI, and IM2. Um, so really pretty spaced out intermittent dosing. <clears throat> so you can't really subtract doses of asparaginase because you're giving this longer acting product. You do get a longer activity, uh, but it's unclear you know, how that's going to benefit our patients because there's no outcome data yet comparing the two head-to-head. Um, There is some toxicity data from two trials, one run by Dana-Farber and one run by COG several years ago showing that the toxicity profiles are pretty comparable, but I think that's still a question for debate and one that we'll probably glean more information about as we're more commonly using CalPeg. Okay, so those are two E. coli-based products, but of course, as uh, Dr. Mace will discuss momentarily, a subset of our patients will have allergic reactions to E. coli-based disparagenases. For those patients, it's really important that we have a replacement product available to them. Um, And again, we talked about the fact that multiple bacteria produce asparaginase. And another bacteria that does so is Erwinia chrysanthemum. It makes its own version of an asparaginase. And that asparaginase, fortunately, has no immunologic cross-reactivity with the E. coli asparaginase. You can safely substitute one for the other when a patient's had an allergic reaction. So for many years, um, the Erwinia product that we had available to us was native or when Um, because it's only in its native form um, as expected it has a relatively short uh, half-life of around seven hours given IV and around 16 hours when given by IM administration so because this half-life is significantly shorter than the days-long half-life of our pegylated products you have to give multiple doses of it to achieve the same level of asparagine depletion that you do with every one dose of pegylated E. coli asparaginase So the dose of Erwinase was 25,000 international units per uh, meter square given on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule times six doses to achieve that same two-week depletion of asparagine you'd anticipate from a long-acting product. Um, Unfortunately, um, as we know, that product was uh, fraught with manufacturing difficulties that led to very severe and prolonged uh, shortages of that drug, making it unavailable to our patients for some time. At this time, actually, uh, there's no longer an FDA approval um, for Irwinase, that label was revoked. Um, and so it's not even available at all in the United States. It, it is still available in many countries outside of the United States, however. But what we do have now, um, and Dr. Mays will go into great detail about this product, is a recombinant version of Irwinia aspergidase. So it's the same uh, basic protein structure amino you know, acid for amino acid, it's the same. It's just synthesized in a more readily manufactured way um, so this helps to overcome the limitations that we had um, that led to those prolonged shortages because it's much easier to make. Um, from the trial that Luke will describe, um, we know that it's, um, because it's basically the same protein, it's half-life. Uh, we an given IM by IM administration, which is currently the only FDA approved uh, route of administration is about the same as or SBR genes that we've previously had. Um, there are two FDA-approved doses currently, 25 milligrams per meter square every 48 hours, or 25 milligrams on Mondays and Wednesdays with a higher dose, 50 milligrams per meter square on Fridays, and Dr. Mace will describe the rationale for those different doses. <clears throat> um, this is approved for pediatric and adult patients, so there aren't any age restrictions on the use of uh, recombinant or Okay, so just to sort of summarize this part, we know that um, asparaginase is is really a key component. And we know that because we've found studies that show more is better. We have studies that show less is worse. So it's a real cornerstone of ALL therapy. But I think as pediatric oncologists, if we had to describe our relationship with asparaginase, we would say it's complicated because we love the efficacy, but the toxicities are really unique and challenging. Um, So we'll talk uh, about a lot of those as we move through the slides today. So I'm going to start with just two um, cases, ones that we commonly encounter in our clinics. Um, so let's say we've got an eight-year-old boy recently diagnosed with ALL. Um, he's of normal body habitus, um, and he's preparing to start his standard uh, BALL uh, treatment regimen. On the other hand, we've got in the next clinic room, our 22-year-old AYA patient. His BMI is 37. Um, you're going to treat him with a pediatric-based uh, in high-intensity chemotherapy backbone. So, I'll turn it over to Dr. Mason to say, when you think about these two patients, what are the factors that come to mind as you think about giving them asparaginase?
2: Right, Rach. I mean, I think these are uh, good contrasting um, uh, scenarios to look at that we all probably have um, had some sort of uh, experience with. And and I think, you know, obviously age is important for us. I I think, you know, throughout our treatments, our therapies, you know, our our AYA um, adult colleagues know that, you know, in general... They may not be able to tolerate our our treatments as as well. Not that they can't, but something to consider. And then um, some some more recent work on BMI uh, has certainly um, come to light with our colleague, um, Etan Orgel uh, from CHLA has looked into this pretty extensively. And and we know that there is a, a relationship with BMI and toxicity. I think it's important, though, to understand you know, what you're talking about with BMI, you know, is it obesity? You know, what, what's the BSA of the patient? You know, um, how are we defining obesity in our populations? And, and I think, you know, those things are, are, are certainly important and, 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 and we should consider those as we think about what we're going to do uh, for these two different patients.
1: Yeah, great. Um, so, so certainly Asian and BMI um, certainly come to the forefront of thinking when you're, you're comparing these two patients for sure. Um, So so let's let's first look at some of those unique asparaginase-associated toxicities and how they relate to age. Um, So this is a really nice summary, sort of compiling the data, um, I think nicely highlighting the fact that some of the most severe and sort of um, challenging complications of asparaginase therapy that we deal with um, are are associated with increased age. So if you just compare adolescents, uh, adults, and sort of this lighter blue and pediatric patients in the dark blue, you'll see that many of the, the really challenging ones like hyperglycemia, Elevated liver, liver enzymes, pancreatitis, thrombosis are all much more commonly encountered in our AYA population compared to younger kids. Additionally, um, as Luke mentioned, uh, Aton Orgel has recently done a, a very nice study looking at COG uh, study patients, uh, almost 5,000 of them, so it's a really nice cohort, um, looking specifically for risk factors uh, of toxicity. Um, and this was a, a good mixed population. So 25% of them fell into the AYA category. 18% were obese, um, and 39% had a BSA of greater than 1.5. And that's that BSA is significant because above that, um, your dose of pegylated E. coli asparaginase would fall above one vial. So 3750 international units is one vial of asparaginase, and if you're above 1.5 meter square, then you would get a higher dose than that. So that's just something to keep in mind. Um, and what Aton showed from this uh, cohort. Uh, was just as as that prior slide I showed, with increased age, you see increased rates of of asparaginase-associated toxicities. And the older you are, the higher that risk goes. Additionally, when you look at BMI, um, just like with age, as your BMI increases, so do your risk for just overall toxicities associated with asparaginase. And you can see compared to even overweight patients, obese patients have a significantly greater risk of asparaginase-associated toxicities. Breaking that down even further, of course, we grade obesity um, from sort of least obese to greatest obese. And and again, we see that with increasing uh, sort of class of obesity, we have substantially increasing risk of of asparagine use associated toxicities. You know, an odds ratio of 17.2 is quite striking. Um, Additionally, so I I often get the question, right, well, what about about the tall skinny kid whose BSA is is high? Um, Are they at the same risk as a patient whose BSA is high because they're obese? Um, and So, Aton's data was able to, to, to sort that out as well. And what he found is if you have a high BSA with obesity, you're at significantly increased risk for, for some of those toxicities that we just talked about, hyperbilirubinemia, elevated ALT, uh, and thrombosis, not pancreatitis of interest. If you look at the, kit, the tall, skinny kid, so your BSA is high, but you are not obese, then your risk was not significantly increased for those toxicities. So, really, it's just patients with both obesity and high BSA they're at risk for those toxicities. It's not just having a high BSA, so it's not just about the dose you get. Okay, so are there ways we can overcome some of these risks associated with obesity? And that's something that we've all been thinking about because we've all seen these patients and know that these these, uh, toxicities can be dose limiting uh, and at some points uh, life-threatening. So there was a small study um, uh, that came out a few years ago saying, okay, let's just look at patients who got more than one vial or less than one vial. So just based on flat dose alone. And what this study shows was that uh, those patients who got um, less than a vial uh, had lower rates of several toxicities associated with asparagines compared to patients who got higher doses. So maybe not surprising. So thrombosis, uh, pancreatitis, and not shown on the slide, hyperbilirubinemia were all associated with getting a higher dose. Um, Of course, adult providers have been thinking about this as well because they often have older patients, many of whom are obese. Um, And so they've looked at uh, using lower doses. So Uh, less than a 1,000 compared to higher doses for their patients. And overall, have found lower rates of particularly liver toxicity uh, when they use the lower dosing regimen for their patients. Um, uh, I I apologize for those who use St. Jude or DFCI or other consortia. I'm a COG person, so I know that best. Um, But I will say COG studies now allow for dose capping at that one vial for patients with obesity. So if your BMI is 30 or greater, or if it's greater than or equal to 95th percentile for your age, you're allowed to dose cap for those patients now in COG studies. We don't yet know if that is going to be associated with lower rates of toxicities. We don't yet know how that's going to correspond with outcomes, um, but we thought it was a reasonable measure to take given these high rates of toxicities uh, seen in our patients. So there have been some other possible uh, mitigation strategies explored, and I think a lot of these warrant some study and exploration. Right now, there have been no head-to-head comparisons. But a few of the ideas that have been tossed around is that maybe if you delay the dose. So induction is when we often see those kids with hyperbularubinemia. After their day four dose, they show up on day 22 and they're yellow head to toe. So if you delay that dose until day 15 or later, there's some European data showing that you reduce the risk of that liver toxicity. Maybe it's just a less inflamed liver because you debulk some of their leukemia from it. Hard to say, but that's something that's being explored. L-carnitine is also being used as a Potential prophylactic uh, option, and that's gonna be studied in a CCL uh, COG study coming up soon. Um, and then others, you know, some people have hypothesized maybe it's the high peak asparagine activity you get after a pegylated product um, that is associated with that risk. So maybe giving something like a short-acting product may be actually better, um, but none of those have been studied or compared. So it's a little bit too early to say that they will be efficacious, but I think more to come. All right, so just a few quick take homes on sort of this per- first part of the talk. Um, Asparaginase is a cornerstone of therapy. We have to give it to our patients, and we really need to opt- optimize its administration and limit the number of patients who have truncated uh, asparaginase treatment courses. Um, there have been a lot of changes to the asparaginase product landscape. It's been a little hard to keep up with, um, but I think ultimately sort of the dust has settled, at least for now, and I think we're pretty set on the products we have available. I think it's great that we're no longer faced with uh, shortages of our winning asparaginase. that has been a real win for our patients. Um, The toxicities are unique, incredibly challenging, and very specific, and I think it's really important to think about the risk for each specific patient you encounter in your clinic based on age, obesity, and other factors. All right. With that, I'm going to turn it over to to Luke. (laughs) Uh,
2: Thanks, uh, Dr. Rao. Um, Excellent, and thanks, everyone, for being here. It's hard for me to wait up here. I love to talk, and I'm sitting up here for 25 minutes listening, (laughs) listening. Now I get to be the star of the show. Okay. Well, um, thanks again, everyone, and and we'll talk a little bit. You know, Rachel laid a nice foundation, I think, and, and we will kind of talk about a little um, more detail of, of some of the things that she went over, and also kind of interact with 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 these kind of continued discussions about potential cases or or, or scenarios that you might find um, ourselves in. And I think you know this this topic of hypersensitivity and infusion reactions. I see the questions that are already on the list here. There's several of them here. I think this is a a hot topic um, for everyone. And, you know, unfortunately we don't have great answers here, but I do think it's important to, to think about some of these scenarios and, and how you would approach them. So we have this same eight year old has a normal BMI, starts um, their their PEG uh, component. Um, they they come in for their consolidation day 43 therapy. Um, uh, everyone in the room has, has experienced this, I assume 10 minutes into the infusion, they have some itching, dizziness. Um, no headaches uh, and, and some chest pain. And so, Rachel, what do you think about this? I mean, you—I'm you, sure you experienced this at a uh, high volume center like like Texas. You know, hypersensitivity or, or an infusion reaction. What do you think?
1: Yeah, that's that's why it's hard. Right? It's never clear just based on the description. It's almost never clear when you're in front of the patient, and this is a super common. I feel like every day experience we have um and it's really in the heat of the moment i think impossible to sort out Um, you know some clues can be are they just read to head to toe or do they have hives You know, any respiratory symptoms really make you think of an antibody-mediated reaction as opposed to an infusion reaction. But otherwise, the symptoms are intertwined. So, I mean, obviously, the first thing you have to do is do what's in the best interest of the patient, stop the infusion, monitor them carefully, um, have everybody, you know, with all eyes on deck. Um, and, and, And then you have to really, after things have settled, the patient stabilized, then you can start thinking through was this uh, an antibody-mediated hypersensitivity versus an infusion reaction? You know, in this case, it's it's a later dose, so that makes it more likely. Um, you know, other things uh, about this presentation don't really help you a, a whole lot. Sort it out.
2: Right. Yeah, I think it's tough. I mean, this is the the kind of exercise we go through with each other, um, uh, clinicians, nurse practitioners, pharmacists, nurses, everyone who's seeing these patients in this moment as we huddle around them to try and figure out what to do next. And so, you know, we'll talk about this in a little bit more depth, hypersensitivity versus infusion reactions. I think um, if there was a, you know, crystal ball where we could predict this, this would be great. But, but unfortunately, there's not. And, and, you know, as Rachel kind of went through, you know, how these products are made, you know, we, we are, we are um, ex- when we get exposed to something that's foreign to our body, that, that can be um, preceded as not good. And, and that's probably a good thing, right, in the end. Uh, but, but these things then produce antibodies these hypersensitivity reactions um i love spanning the gamut of review articles of of which you know we we've wrote a few and and i'm sure some of you guys have as well looking at the incidence of these reactions three to thirty percent is will be chosen here i think you know right uh, it depends on how much of of it you're giving you know the, the population but we know um there will be patients who have these true hypersensitivity reactions but what about infusion reactions um, you know, this is, uh, we see this in, in lots of, uh, of arenas when we're giving, uh, medicines, uh, like, you know, uh, antibodies or, or chemotherapeutics. And, and it's due to this, you know, direct ac- activation of the complement system at times, the cytokines, histamine release. I think, um, the levels of ammonia and, you know, my favorite word to say, and I'm not good at saying it, um, is, uh, something that happens, right. And we know that this happens. Um, these symptoms are listed here. I think it's sometimes difficult to tell right between hypersensitivity and this, and it's always something to, to consider. We're not going to go into detail of this because, um, in the interest of time, but but something to be aware of. And these infusion reactions aren't antibody mediated, and so the 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 possibility for rechallenging is there, and, and probably should be done. But it's it's sorting this out right in our patients. And how do we do that? Rachel was talking, you know, about some of these things, the signs and symptoms. Um, are always something to consider, but, but we'll see in the next uh, slide how, how these things can overlap. I think there are some clues uh, to, to, to help you kind of uh, determine this, but it can be difficult. And then timing, you know, Rachel mentioned this timing thing. And so I think, uh, you know, when you think about, you know, getting exposure, that's what sensitizes your body. The second, you know, time you get, you see it, or the third time you see it, this is where your highest probability is to have a true antibody-mediated response. Um, we do know that continuous exposure does decrease um, your incidence of hypersensitivity with pegylated um, asparaginase. Uh, we've seen this in the Dana-Farber Consortium. We see this in the European studies that have used continuous exposure and not um, uh, intermittent exposure. Uh, and then infusion reactions we know are most common uh, with the first exposure, and they do decrease with subsequent exposures, but it doesn't um, necessarily rule it out, right? These are just kind of clues um, uh, uh, for the detective work that we we try and do for our patients. And so uh, what can provide clues? This, this is a, a table, you know, that, that I often reference, um, in, in talks and, and, it's a great kind of review article. And, uh, you know, when you think about these symptoms by body system and how to differentiate hypersensitivity versus infusion reactions, um, what, uh, isn't as helpful about this table is the overlap, right? But, but I've tried to highlight the, 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 the things to think about. So infusion reactions, you know, those things highlighted in red there, um, You know, these are things that I think about, um, uh, you know, uh, headaches, you know, high blood pressure, rigors, rigors, right? We see that um, with some of our antibody-mediated treatments that we use. Uh, You know, these are less likely, right, to be hypersensitivity kind of induced, but again, doesn't rule it out. Um, In terms of the hypersensitivity, this is a lot longer list, I think, because, you know, we want to make sure we're not missing this, right? And I think if you look at the respiratory section here, these are things um, that are hard to hard to uh, get past and, and, and ignore um, when someone's having respiratory compromise. But, but again, you know, uh, you taking the whole picture into account, I think um, I've highlighted in blue here um, the, the uh, laryngeal edema or pharyngeal edema. I think this is really kind of a telltale sign, right, of hypersensitivity. And, and um, some some great work from from Seth Carroll and Hirota Inaba have really shown this to, to be true. But again, not everyone who has a hypersensitivity reaction has this um, has this kind of manifestation? One of the things, and we'll talk about the clinical trial that um, with Rakama and Erwinia. But one of the things that Rachel and I spent a lot of time on when we were um, discussing this trial and, and working through the data is is our our best friend, the CTCAE. Uh, and uh, if you look at the CTCAE version five, I think it's it's important to highlight that they they talk about allergic reaction and infusion related reaction, and they have different. Um, uh, in you know, uh, uh, grades for each of them. And and we think of them often, like even when you're seeing a patient in clinic, and you're trying to, to think about, you know, how to describe what happened. These things can overlap. And I think um, knowing that these things exist and thinking about them is important. I think uh, in general, it can be difficult, like we say, but, you know, at the bottom there, you know, true hypersensitivity, you usually see increasing severity with more severe manifestations. I think the grade two versus grade three is where we get a lot of questions uh, about this and, and we certainly did in the trial. And again, um, looking at these, referencing these when you're seeing your patient, trying to figure out what to do next is, is important. Um, when we talk about hypersensitivity and infusion reactions, you can't um, not mention premedication. Uh, you know, another one of these topics that we could spend a whole hour on uh, discussing. Uh, I think uh, in general, right, uh, we um, have, have come to the belief uh, that premedication is helpful, right it it we use it for antibody therapies, we use it for blood products you know IBIg and we 're always giving you that as well i mean we 're using premedication a lot of times, so why not try it with something like asparaginase, where you have these reactions that can be difficult to distinguish um, What type of premedications you 're using is it there 's a question here already um, that i that I read about you know is antihistamines is is that useful um, steroids you know that 's what the kind of Um, the hallmark is of premedication. This work by Stacey Cooper and Pat Brown at Hopkins really kind of established that, you know, premedication may be helpful for patients. You see in the orange uh, how many patients um, had to have substituted uh, Erwinia for for reactions and and how many had significant reactions uh, pre them instituting premedication. In the blue, you you have uh, after they started premedicating, you have this kind of decrease. Um, Of note, you know, again, this is a single institution study. And I think you know, when we're evaluating evidence for things, it's important to, 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 to point out some of the weaknesses. And I think there's plenty of reports out there that say pre-medication does not help, um, but it is a tool in the toolbox and something that is mentioned um, in every uh, asparaginase uh, FDA label, uh, as we know, and we'll talk a little bit about that uh, going forward. So, you know, thinking about um, how we treat patients with hypersensitivity versus infusion reactions, these are the options that, that, that we can consider, right? If you have an infusion reaction, you know, really rechallenging a patient is is our duty, as Rachel said. You know, if, if you're missing these doses, um, you know it's not good. And if you're you, you want to make sure that that you're um you're treating your patient kind of correctly, as close to the protocols that we can. Um, if you're having a true hypersensitivity, right? We 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 have these these two options here. You know, there was this time when when, as Rachel described, we didn't have um an based product. You know, we had to to resort to other um other two. Uh, other tools in our toolbox and desensitization is something that people have tried and, and people have reported on, um, and, uh, used, uh, you know, again, not, uh, as frequently utilized now that we have an Arwinia product, uh, that's available for patients, but, but something, um, of note. And then, you know, discontinuing therapy is the last thing that we want to do. Um, but, uh, sometimes, you know, you, you're not going to tolerate asparaginase and, and then, you know, you have to kind of deal with the, those, um, those situations. So now we'll talk a little bit more about um, the recombinant Orwinia product. And and I, I judge a, <laughs> a medicine uh, importance by how hard it is to say the name. So I think this one is very important, right? So uh, recombinant, Basantis based Pseudomonas fluorescence, say that uh, 10 times fast. Um, so this product, also known as JZP 458 is a non-E coli-derived asparaginase. It's um, very similar uh, amino acid sequence-wise uh, to or- the Erwinia-based um, uh, product. And then uh, it, we know, is, is recently approved for the use of multi-aging chemotherapy in patients um, who have developed hypersensitivity to an E. coli-based product. So, i have talked about this um, a good amount, and I'm sure some of you have heard some of these uh, discussions before. But, but again, just to review, this was a phase 2-3 trial that was conducted um, with the COG in collaboration with Jazz Pharmaceuticals. And... Um, you know, it included patients who had a grade three or greater allergic reaction to an ecoli right product. We had two parts of the study, included an IM uh, cohort, uh, an IV cohort. These, each of these cohorts got um, six doses a, of drug on Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule. And then the duration kind of depended on how many doses they would need in their schedule. I think it's important to point out, we collected a ton of, of PK data on these patients, Um, These were the time points that these were that um, we assessed asparaginase activity levels, among other things, Um, and it did produce a a, a trove of information on uh, on a good amount of patients. As Rachel said, you know we're still kind of learning about some of these newer products because you know they're newer and not as many patients have have gotten them. So we set this bar of of a a serum asparaginase activity level of greater than or equal to zero point one. This is an internationally agreed upon um, threshold. Again, another hour could be spent on on this, but. Uh, suffice it to say, that's what we set, set set our goals at. We had three different cohorts in the study um, with different doses, um, as you see here, uh, indicated at the bottom. Uh, the the dark blue is the last 48 hour um, siRNA sparerace activity trough, and then the the light blue is the last 72 hours. Um, focusing on our cohort one C, because this is kind of the dosing that that was most recently kind of uh, um, approved by the FDA. We we met our goal of 90 percent of patients achieving this greater than or equal to 0.1 level. Um, if you look on the right, again, just for kind of completeness at sake, you can see these are the mean asparaginase activity levels, and, and our mean levels are, are, are really above 0.1. Um, and again, this is a compilation of, of, of the raw data that was produced by the trial. Um, looking at the adverse events um, that were um, witnessed in the trial, um, breaking these down by by treatment-related, uh, Serious 3-4, um, uh, but I do think uh, this column, again, uh, is the most important ones. Who, who are the people that had to discontinue on uh, drug based on side effects? And you can see um, at the lower dose, less patients. But at the 25, 25, 50, about 10% of patients had to discontinue drug. And as, as Rachel kind of reviewed the side effect profile of Asperger's products, this is um, within the realm of, of what we would expect with, with these medications um, we, we spent a, a specific amount of time looking at, uh, s- special interest AEs, and these include some of the stuff that Rachel did talk about. Um, uh, but, and we'll talk a little bit about these two as well. If you, uh, see, you know, we did have some patients have hypersensitivity, but, you know, not, not an extreme high number. Uh, we did ha- see some patients with pancreatitis, uh, and the thrombosis uh, burden for the patients w- was rather low in this, um, cohort of, of, of patients. And so, when we think about you know monitoring these patients who are getting asparaginase therapies, now switching gears a little bit, um, we have this the AYA patient. We give this um, you know he he or she gets this multi-agent chemotherapy regimen with their asparaginase ratio, and, and on day 15 of their consolidation, um, we res- they they get their dose. The seven-day um, asparaginase activity level is less than 0.013. Um, what do you think about this scenario, and what, what will we kind of what will we do next?
1: Uh, This is one of the the situations in which serum asparaginase activity level or or therapeutic drug monitoring is proven uh, very helpful for our patients. And and this is a, a, a patient with silent inactivation. So not only do the antibodies against asparaginase cause uh, allergic symptoms in patients oftentimes. Um, sometimes even without symptoms, um, those antibodies also degrade the drug. They're neutralizing antibodies, meaning that they eliminate the drug from your body. And, uh, and so it's completely ineffective. So not only are those antibodies potentially causing a life-threatening reaction, but they're also degrading the drug, rendering it completely ineffective. Um, so this is a patient where they would need to, to switch products to something that's non coli based.
2: Absolutely. And there's questions already in our kind of question list about cyanide activation. And I think it's a it's a fascinating topic and and something that we're learning more and more about as more people are utilizing experience activity levels. And if you're thinking about switching, you know what type of regimen would you choose? I think again it depends on 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 what your resources are, what the patient preferences are, and and we'll talk a little bit about kind of the options that a patient may have. But again, you know, again, um, I'm a COG person as well, and, and and we're just more familiar with these guidelines, and this is what's in our protocols in terms of assessing and and great or um diagnosing silent activation, checking these levels at these certain time points and then you know if you're not reaching these troughs then then this is something that you need to look out for um you know people have looked at the rates of silent activation that's a question here i i, I think it's tbd in my my opinion because we're not really sure yet because the, there's not a ton of data on this but it's about five to ten in, percent in those um studies that are out there and reported and you know, we know that you need to really consider switching to an alternative formulation because there's really nothing that can, that we know of at this point that can kind of get past uh, this silent activation um, situation. And so so we know there's two regimens for recombinant Erwinia. So if we're choosing, if we have to use a different um, derived product, this is the product that is available in the U.S., um, we, we uh, have these two different regimens that hopefully gives people some options. Um, they're, they're listed here. Uh, the 25, 25, 50 um, on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then in, in below that kind of dosing, you'll see it talks about 67 hours, 48 hours, 53 to 58 hours, right? And there's a question about that in, in this and we'll, um, you know, address that. Or, you know, you can use the 25 milligrams per meter squared. Um, and, and again, with some specifics about timing. And and while these specifics, you know, about timing, I think are important. I think it's also important for people to, um, uh, really be kind of more realistic about what happens in hospitals. As we know, uh, uh, they're not as well-oiled machines as we would like. Uh, and so, you know, scheduling this infusion on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, really based on each patient's circumstances is what we do. Um, I don't uh, tell my schedulers that you have to schedule this Friday patient, you know, and get her winning at 7 p.m. because that's not really um, safe or feasible. So, again, I think, you know, these 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 timelines are important to know, but again, these are based off of, um, you know, recommendations. And I think in the real world, we know how things go, right, right And, and so, and then you have this pre-medication recommend, recommendation. And it is in, in, I think, all asparaginase product labels now. Um, and it talks about being recommended. Uh, I think the practice certainly varies uh, with um, a pegylated product and non-pegylated product. I'll tell you, uh, I think, and Rachel and I have had many discussions about this, you know, giving and you know, a three-year-old, I, IV Benadryl, um, six six times in a row, three times a week, or whatever, seven you know, seven times. I mean, I don't think that's something that's that's in their best interest. And so, you know, I don't typically pre-medicate patients for this product. And and on the study, it wasn't um, wasn't um, required, and it was just left up to, to, to people's discretion. We didn't really have a huge problem with hypersensitivity and in, 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 in with this product either. So, again, I think. You know, considering the patient, the situation, and and, and what you're dealing with is is something uh, to consider when you talk about these subjects. And now, uh, you know, again, uh, this this is another topic uh, that that often comes up for us, and we get um, emails, um, you know, weekly about this. I think when you think about how many doses, right, uh, that you need to replace a long acting product with, I think this is um, something that. Um, has you know again become a a little bit of a hot topic because of where we're at with the long acting products, as Rachel kind of alluded to. And so uh, you know, there's this table in the in the label for for recombinant erwinia that discusses this. And, and And I think it's important to 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 point it out, but also again think about what we do in the real world and what kind of we recommend as a as a um you know a treatment kind of body. And, and so uh, you have these two doses: twenty five milligrams per meter squared every forty eight hours, or the twenty five, twenty five, fifty. Um, the, the, this column on the, on the far right talks about if you're replacing a PEG aspirase product, how many doses of recombinant or when you, you should use, um, to complete that course. And this is pretty standard, um, and what we would expect, but then you think about the CalPEG product. And as Rachel mentioned, it has this SC linker in it that, that makes it the half like longer. And we know it lasts a little bit longer in the system. So, uh, because of that, uh, there was a recommendation that came out, um, to uh, replace, uh, you know, the 25 milligrams per meter square with 11 doses of recombinuria or nine doses, depending if you're, which um, kind of regimen you're using, uh, if, if the patient was scheduled to get um, CalPEG. What I think is important and what Rachel and I kind of have emphasized when we get questions about this or when we're talking about this and teaching people is what is your, as, as highlighted here in green, what is your intended duration, right? In our COG protocols, our intended duration of, uh, of depletion, as Rachel mentioned, is is based on peg. is based on peg aspergase, and that product, you know, is about a 14 day kind of duration. And, and so, based on that, you know, we are, you know, the COG is recommending, and we've we've put this out before, um, that you know, this is the these are the replacement number of doses you should be using, kind of regardless for our patients. Rachel, any comments about that?
1: Uh, I I agree. I, I think if you're using a Dana Farber protocol, and you're going to give 10 doses of long acting to get your 30 weeks, then you should use this recommendation. And COG, what I tell people is our intended duration has not changed, only the products available to our patients. We know from decades worth of COG data that the intermittent dosing we use that is expected to deplete asparagine for 14 days results on the outcomes that we are all very familiar with. Um, and the toxicity profile we are all very familiar with so uh, in in my opinion' we are, our intended duration is still 14 days and so we should give the Erwinia aspergenes to achieve that same intended duration and so that's what uh, our on CoG studies is is recommended based on a memo that was posted for all of our protocols
2: So we'll move over the this next kind of these next few slides pretty quickly Rachel kind of already talked a little bit about some of these toxicities and we want to get, through this to, you know, in the, in the best interest um, so we can get to the questions, which I think there's so many good ones on here. Uh, there's no way we can get through them all, but we're going to get through as many as we can. So, so, what if our p- patient developed uh, aspergies-associated toxicity, you know, thrombosis? You know, we think about withholding treatment and anticoagulation. We'll talk about this. Pancreatitis, was, which Rachel mentioned, you know, these interventions do vary by grade. Um, and then, you know, we talk about the really severe events and and how we would deal with that. And then liver dysfunction, which which Rachel had talked about already. So, when we think about um, asparaginase-induced uh, venous thromboembolism, um, you know, again, there, there are very few studies um, that kind of uh, describe this in, in, in great detail. Um, we know that, you know, if you have enough, you know, a side effect like this, it's, it's it, you know, important to withhold um, asparaginase until the, acuity, uh, uh, the acute symptoms resolve. We talk about, you know, how to treat. We use low molecular weight heparin most frequently in, in pediatrics. Um, there's a question on here about DOACs. I think it's a great question. Um, I think again, it's a newer type of uh, of intervention, and we're still learning more. I'll talk about this on the next slide. You know, how long do you treat? This is a, this is also you know it uh, can be debated. But I think you know you treat for for as long as you need to treat, and then you think about kind of prophylaxis with with cons- if you're continuing the therapy at, at um, further dates, and then for significant thrombosis. Um, you know, obviously, you're gonna look for inherited predispositions. When we talk about prophylaxis, I, I think this is a, a hot topic. And Sarah O'Brien's study that uh, was conducted, you know, in collaboration with COG and pharma, um, talked about, you know, used a um versus standard of care to prevent thromboembolism in, in induction. And, and, you know, she, she found w- that there was some, some significant reduction in this. And, and I think there'll be more to come about prophylaxis. Uh, and we can talk a little bit about this, about our practices. Um, as well, based on one of the questions we have. And then when looking at pancreatitis, I think uh, this is, you know, in my mind, people talk about hypersensitivity as being the worst. I think pancreatitis is the worst kind of side effect that you can have from PEG because it, it may, it, it, it's, it's difficult to deal with. You have long-lasting effects, and, and, and you talk about how to, to supplement that. The Europeans have looked at this, you know, in, in detail, and, and this is a, a review from the Pontadileno group. That talks about these types of how to classify pancreatitis, abdominal pain, elevation of enzymes, and then um, imaging um, findings. I think uh, what what's most important to us, right, uh, is you know can you rechallenge those patients and and the Europeans have 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 put out some good data that is successful at times. Um, you know about half the time, kind of depending on on severity. They looked at you know certain factors to try to see which would would be um, associated with with. Um, a lack of success with rechallenging. We really haven't found that yet. Um, this was uh, another, um, you know, European-based study. Uh, you know, the the Norwegians or the NOFO group, I should say, um, uh, looked at this, and you know, they had about a seven to ten percent rate of pancreatitis. They looked at their second exposure rates. You know, again, very similar kind of uh, second uh, incidence of pancreatitis around forty to fifty percent of patients. I think it's important to say that you know, the, in, in the patients that were challenging rechallenge there hasn't been you know uh, you know a very large amount of like you know really kind of grade 5 events and so but it is a, it is a challenging thing i think you think about age as Rachel talked about this is from that same kind of nofo evaluation in in the 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 blue um, the younger patients seem to have a little bit less incidence of pancreatitis um, but again you know we know it occurs in in all age groups and so when we think about how we modify you know this is a, a, again recommendations from from um, kind of the COG and, and, and I think, you know, mild grade three is where it, it kind of is a little bit, there's this gray area, right? And you kind of have to assess the situation, you know, significant grade three, certain um, um, associated symptoms and findings, you know, really should, should think about discontinuing the drug. Um, so, so looking at kind of our, our take-home messages, so we want to differentiate between hypersensitivity and infusion reactions. This is challenging you know, we need to be aware of silent activation recombinant when he is safe and effective as we reviewed some of the evidence from that and then you do have these kind of especially these associated um aspergeny side effects that do require kind of special consideration so now we have some time here um, to go over some questions i think uh uh um we can kind of go through here the list here rich and then um see if there's anyone in the audience that's brave enough to to get up and and, and to use a microphone but um So, uh, would routine asparaginase levels in PK be part of our future? I think this is a great, uh, question. I, I, I think in general, like there's, there's two labs that, that do this. It's, um, you know, it's accessible. Um, and I I think, uh, monitoring levels is, is something that, that we do, we do frequently. Um, I think if you're premedicating patients, right, you have to monitor levels. That's an international kind of recommendation, um, but I do think it's becoming more and more commonplace uh, in in the United States, anyway.
1: Yeah, and in Europe, most of their studies have centralized right. asparaginase activity uh, monitoring, so I think it is already standardized there. It's less so in the U.S. We've left it to the discretion of the providers, at least in the COG side. Um, but that may be something that's changing, especially with the ever-changing asparaginase product landscape. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll take the uh, next question. I think we've covered a lot of these questions yeah. sort of as we've... Gone along. Uh, let's see. Riley said it did not require premedications. Oh, uh, do you think environmental exposure to in (parentheses dietary) affect hypersensitivity? That's a great question, really interesting one. I'm not sure about asparaginase, but um, you know, some of the allergic reactions to our pegylated products has been shown to be to the peg moiety itself. The very first COG trial I ran actually was pegylated orwinia asparaginase. How awesome would that be, right? Uh, the problem was um, our patients. Uh, three of the four that we actually enrolled, God, that's so sad to say, four patients on a trial that I spent two years of my life on um, had allergic reactions. And what it ended up was is that they reacted to the pegmoity, right? That's the common commonality between, you know, Pegaspargase that they got and the pegylated E. coli. And there is a lot of polyethylene glycol in the products we use, foods, makeups, exposures in in, in vaccines and other things. So there's some uh, suggestion that maybe uh, increased environmental exposure to pegmoity, might predispose to this, but I think that's really kind of a murky, a murky area. Uh, and we haven't seen increased rates of asparaginase reactions with changes in diet or products. So I'm not sure that's going to sort of pan out, but it's a really interesting question.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. And, and here's one about T-cell ALL, which is um, near and dear to my heart. I mean, we don't, does T-cell ALL miss doses of asparaginase affect outcomes also? Uh, this is a great question. Something we've talked about within the T-cell kind of uh, um, uh, groups in, within COG um, were looking at this. I would uh, expect that the answer to this is yes, um, but but to my knowledge, not not great data on that 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 subject at to this point. But we're mm. trying to collect that. Uh,
1: the Question regarding uh, patients that have peg induced pancreatitis and then have their uh, is omitted for the rest of therapy increased rates of. Uh, relapse, lower survival rates. So, the NOFO data included any patient who had omitted asparaginase therapy and showed increased rates of relapse in those patients. And and similarly, um, Smith's data didn't limit it to patients who just couldn't get her winning because it wasn't available. It was anybody who didn't complete all their courses. So, yes, those data support that in patients uh, who have truncated asparaginase therapy for whatever reason, they have increased rates of toxicity. Now, what I will say is there's one, I think, kind of important caveat is that uh, Smith's data really showed that in our high-risk patients, so patients being treated with that more intense chemo backbone, missed asparaginase led to increased rates of relapse. However, on our standard risk patients, they only get that one dose in induction and the one dose in DI. Those patients actually didn't have worse outcomes if they missed some asparaginase. So I think that's kind of an important consideration. And so when I think of actually asparaginase in the context of someone who's had pancreatitis, one of the most important factors that I take into consideration is what is this patient's risk of relapse? If it's sort of that mild grade three and it's a kid on a standardist backbone, I might just admit it um, because there's a 50-50 chance that they're going to have another uh, occurrence of pancreatitis. If it's a 14-year-old with T-cell ALL, I'm more concerned about their risk of relapse if I drop this really important component of therapy. So I might be more likely to re-challenge those kids. I base my re-challenge on not only the toxicity that they had, but their risk of relapse.
2: Yeah. I mean, again, like the individual situation is so important be nice to have a nice algorithm for this, but really it's hard when when you have many different kind of scenarios. How quickly should you be prepared to switch formulations after confirming hypersensitivity uh, or silent activation? I I think um, there is some data out there that says, you know, you should really not be, right? We want to try and stay on our schedule, on our, you know, our protocol schedule, right? This is where our outcomes come from. I think within 48 hours is ideal, 72 hours, certainly. When you start getting past that, then you're starting to delay other treatments. And as Rachel will tell you, being you know a, a study chair right now, I mean, then you're delaying the the time point when you get your MRD results. Um, you you're, you're 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 not on on the schedule, and I think that isn't ideal. But again, the most important thing is replacing the doses, and and so however long it takes, it takes. But really trying to get your team ready and 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 responsive to these things. I think if you are having issues with getting um, the replacement product, this is something that um, you you can communicate um, to to um, your suppliers. You can communicate to to Jazz itself and they're really committed to getting you guys the product as soon as you can um, because they know how important it is. So so keep that in mind.
1: These lights are blinding. So if anyone has a question out there, please let me know. Uh, Otherwise, we'll keep going with the online ones. Um, So uh, when using Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Riley's dosing. How early on Friday can the dose be administered? whenever you want to give it, frankly. Um, so I, I just like to kind of put into context why the recommendation is in the FDA label. Okay, so in addition to the observed data from the trial, um, pharmacokinetic modeling was used. And that's that's really a basis of a lot of drug approvals nowadays. So it's not outside the norm. But essentially what the FDA did is they took the PK um, curve, right? And they put a confidence interval around it. And wherever that confidence interval, the bottom of it fell below 90% of patients being anticipated to be at 0.1, that's where they cut it off. Okay, so you'll notice, I think it says like 68 hours from the Friday dose to the Monday dose. That's because if you look at the confidence interval around that, at the 68 hour mark, the bottom of the confidence interval was 90.1. If you went to 69 hours, it fell to like 89 point something. Okay, so I think if you sort of weigh the risk of having potentially a patient fall below 0.1 on a Monday, to me, that risk is way less than trying to give somebody an asparaginase product at 8 p.m. on a Friday. So frankly, just give it when you can. Don't change your clinic workflow. Don't make the patient go to, you know, uh, all kinds of different, uh, you know, family situations to try to get there at a specific time on Friday. We didn't require that in the trial. We just said give it on Friday or Mon- and Monday. Um, give it when it makes sense for the patient and your clinic workflow.
2: Yeah. Um, it's, it's important to kind of understand that context too. I think as you explain that, to your teams um, in general. Uh, so any situations where you might use the every other day or when you at, or is Monday, Wednesday, Friday preferred? I, I think this is a, a, a common question we get. I mean, I think it's nice to have options, but then sometimes people get confused. I, I, I don't think that there is one scenario where say, I would definitely use that one or use the other one. Again, it's, it's more kind of what your institutional resources are, what's the family's kind of preference. You know, if you have to use every 48 hours and that patient's gonna have to either come into the clinic on the weekend um or be admitted you know as a short stay or something like that. So I think that there's really not an advantage either way. Um uh, from from my perspective. So again, I think either is 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 acceptable and and whatever kind of works best for the patient in your kind of particular scenario. Uh, Rachel. Rachel.
1: Yeah. Sorry uh, we're a little bit over time. It's, uh but
2: Hi Rachel, Luke, thank you. Branco here. Um, hi, hi, quick question. Are there any studies on capping doses and
0: outcomes?
1: Right. Uh, so not, not to my knowledge. Uh, and again, that was one caveat that I mentioned. We've allowed this in COG protocols based on the data that it's uh, potentially going to help with some toxicities, right? Because I guess if you're uh, preventing a dose-limiting toxicity, that's probably preferred. Uh, but we don't yet know about the outcome impact. Um, it's a great question. I would say that that adults have been using lower doses for some time, and their outcomes overall are pretty good as long as they're able to safely give Um, But it's it's still a, a question to be answered. I would say.
2: Yeah, I agree, Bronco. I mean, I think that we need to be check. We need more data on on activity, you know, levels at certain time points. And if you don't need to have this high of a dose in certain scenarios, I don't think we should be using it. So yeah. And
1: we're, we're collecting the data on, we're asking patients uh, on COG, CRFs, have you capped the dose, yes or no? So I think we'll get those data eventually, but but not yet. Question okay, maybe here. Can... I, I just got a notification that my flight's delayed, so I can stay. How long y'all want? Hi there. Um, I'm Janie. I'm a fellow at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, and I have a quick question, maybe a little naive, but... Um, is there a discussion being had about dose adjustments for Erwinia based on age and uh, BMI as well?
2: Great question. Something that that we that we get a lot. You know, I we we're not having those discussions. It's not something we've done. We didn't do it on the trial. We didn't see any correlation between you know BMI and toxicities uh, on the trial. Again, um, there's you know course caveat that's not this is not a naive question by the way great question um that they are you know these are small numbers and so we need to we need to gather more data and we're certainly in talks about doing that um just that is is trying to look at some of these things but we have done some small individual type uh, looks at the data and it doesn't seem to be that there's any kind of signal but again it's a smaller um cohort but but something that yeah we should Mm -hmm. think about that's a great question
1: um, I'm going to take one more question here. Assuming a patient experiences severe pancreatitis with Pegaspargase, can alternative forms of asparagines be used safely? I'm going to highlight this because no. If you've had a, a severe pancreatitis to asparaginase, that's any asparaginase. You cannot replace that with a different version of asparaginase. If you have to uh, stop asparaginase therapy because of pancreatitis, that is inclusive of any asparaginase product. Any questions? earlier. All right. I think with that, we'll wrap it up and thank you guys for your participation and attendance.
0: This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash TAQ 860. This program is supported by an independent medical education grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals.